Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Firstly, to all our listeners, Happy New Year and a big sorry. We've just been so busy. Listen, we're responsible for running more than $5 billion of institutional and retail money across a rich range of portfolio strategies. If we were blasting podcasts out all the time, you might be concerned that we were distracted by marketing and communications. Our commitment to this podcast is to reduce when we have important content we want to convey. Also, we do publish a huge amount of written content on a weekly basis via Chris's AFR columns, Livewire articles, and our investor reporting. So we have just been so incredibly busy in 2020. Chris did not want to get distracted for even a moment with podcast recording. Having said that, we now have time to reflect. In fact, Chris, you have actually pre-positioned yourself in Queensland ahead of the border shutdowns, right? Yes, he is. I have indeed. I really wanted to see some clients face-to-face, so I quickly flew up to Queensland just hours before they officially shut the border. And the good news is I will be seeing clients in person in Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide over the next few weeks. As much as we love using Zoom and Teams, it is, to be honest, wonderful to be able to travel again. I feel very fortunate and have that much more human and visceral experience. Okay, Chris, let's get going. Oh my gosh, what a year 2020 was. Why don't we start by you giving us a wrap? Yeah, sure, Yingers. While we take it as given that uncertainty is the one true constant, 2020 definitely presented an extraordinary array of known unknowns and unknown unknowns, to borrow from the Rumsfeldian lexicon. Australia started 2020 in flames, obviously with the bushfires, as the world faced the spectre of US and Iranian military conflict that really risked spiraling into a wider major power war. The first global pandemic in 100 years began propagating in earnest at the same juncture, which triggered the worst economic shock since the Great Depression, coupled with savage illiquidity and steep losses across all asset classes in February and March. Much more predictably, this then necessitated the mother of all liquidity and quantitative easing injections from the global central banking community including the RBA, which would then embark on outright asset purchases rather belatedly in November. And of course, we fairly actively positioned our portfolios to capitalise on that event by aggressive buying of government bonds from around 1 August 2020. By June, Australia had experienced its first recession in almost three decades with negative GDP growth prints over the first and second quarters. This convinced almost all analysts, economists, and fund managers to predict an Aussie housing Armageddon, partly fueled by consensus forecasts for the unemployment rate to soar between 10% and 12%. Even the RBA and Treasury were drinking from the same Kool-Aid on this doomsday front. And yet, Chris, in March and April, Coolabar advised our clients that Aussie dwelling values would only correct by 0 to 5% over a brief six-month interval, following which they would commence climbing again. And then we concurrently projected that Australia's jobless rate would rapidly settle at 6 to 7%, miles below the double-digit numbers expected by the consensus. And as it transpired, national home values declined by just 2.1% on a peak to trough basis over the circa six-month horizon that had been anticipated, uh, officially troughing in September. So over the 2020 calendar year, Aussie dwelling values actually managed to climb 3%. 
Yeah, Ying, as well, we'll return to the housing market later. The jobless rate, uh, I think, similarly surprised the analyst community, only increasing to 7.0%. As you know, it's currently settled at 6.8%. Care of a faster-than-assumed recovery across the economy, buoyed by huge fiscal and monetary support. This extraordinary year also bequeathed us a new Cold War between China and the West, as we have been warning clients for a long time. The belated consummation of Brexit, Megxit for British royal family fans, a tumultuous single-term Trump presidency, perhaps a blessing for many, and of course, the best investment opportunities that we had seen in some time. Crucially, Chris, the smart money was buying, not selling in March 2020 on the presumption that unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy stimulus would compel aggressive mean reversion in liquid, high-grade and yet extremely oversold assets. While nobody on the planet predicted a global pandemic in December 2019, it was obvious to us that the key consequence of this shock would be the mother of all asset pricing recoveries. This is why we traded about $1 billion in the month of March alone, with roughly 90% of our activity skewed to buying. For Coolabar's clients, December was another healthy month of alpha generation across our portfolios as valuations continue to ineluctably mean revert towards our proprietary fair value targets, capping off what was in the final analysis, a very rewarding 12-month period. Over the year, we bought and sold $25.1 billion of bonds, approximately $15 billion of which was credit, with another $10 billion in government and semi-government bond trades. This involved a total 18,231 buys and sells. Our win ratio on these transactions was 98.2%, with capital gains generated 93.3% of the time. While we will return to valuation relativities in a moment, please permit a brief digression on performance. Over the 2020 calendar year, Coolabar's long shot credit fund returned 9.12% gross, and that's 6.33 to 6.54% net retail. Relative to the RBA cash rate, which did 0.25%, the Osborne FRN index, which did 1.79%, the ASX hybrids index, which did 2.49% unfranked, and the Aussie share market, which did 3.64%, including dividends, as represented by the All Ordinaries Accumulation Index. The Long Short Credit Fund finished 2020 as the number one ranked strategy in Mercer's short duration credit universe over one year, two years, and three years. For Insto clients, Coolabar runs a number of other long-short active credit solutions. Over the last 12 months, these strategies returned between 9.22% and 11.57% on a gross basis. Since these are Insto-only products with confidential fee terms, fees are quoted on a gross, not net basis. Coolabar's much longer duration active composite bond strategy returned a robust 8.39% gross of fees over 2020 relative to the composite bond index's 4.48%, outperforming by 3.91%. It ranks in the top two products in Mercer's Aussie fixed income universe over the last three years. And since this is a strategy which is an in-store-only product with confidential fee terms, returns are quoted on a gross, not net basis again. Coolabar is also the investment manager of BetaShare's HBRD Active ETF product, which is a full capital structure solution that focuses on investment-grade hybrids issued by Australian banks. 
In 2020, HBRD beat the sole active ASX hybrids index on an unfranked basis by 0.58% after all HBRD's retail fees, even though it was only about 90% invested in hybrids over this period. The index is fully invested by comparison. While final franking numbers have yet to be determined, we estimate that in the 2020 year, HBRD returned approximately 4.11% franked after all retail fees compared to the sole active ASX hybrids index's 3.71% return. Coolabar's daily liquidity solution that is classified in FE Fund Info's cash-enhanced universe, namely the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund, returned 3.97% gross, or 2.78% to 2.95% net, exceeding the RBA cash rate, which did 0.25%, the Osborne Bank Bill Index, which did 0.37%, and the Osborne FRN Index, which did 1.79%. Smarter Money Higher Income ranks number one in FE Fund Info's cash-enhanced universe over one year, three years, and five years. Please note that past performance is no guide to future returns. You should read the product PDSs to better understand their risks, and please do consult a professional financial advisor when making any decisions. Thanks, Yes, Yes, 2020 was certainly a regime change of sorts for asset pricing. The RBA's target cash rate started in 2020 at 0.75% and finished at an all-time record low of just 0.1%. In January 2020, the average TD rate was 1.05%. By December, it had slumped to just 0.35%. Along similar lines, the yield on a three-year Aussie government bond began 2020 at 0.90%. It would finish at just 0.10%, which is where it is set to remain for several years if the RBA's explicit forward guidance proves correct. In a year of numerous contrarian calls, I reckon one of our better ones was the projection that effective COVID-19 vaccines would be developed, approved and distributed in 2020. While this was based on our internal analysis and the advice of one of the world's most respected immunologists, it conflicted with the opinions of almost all other experts until very recently. As it happened, Moderna and Pfizer did indeed deliver immensely potent vaccines with circa 95% efficacy, which they began deploying to the public in December. Although 2021 is bound to be rocky, this does lay the foundations for a secular rebound in global growth, which is Coolabar's central case. We believe that the dominant narrative in 2021 will be the newly intensified search for yield or search for risk dynamic, which is particularly acute locally. Australian savers have never had to confront TD rates below 0.5% or at call rates and three-year government bond yields that are sitting near the 0% lower bound. For many, this will undermine the value of cash and government bonds as an asset class, forcing them to look for superior yields elsewhere. We have already observed the inception of this process, which is compressing spreads on high-yielding asset classes. I agree, Chris. At the start of 2020, five-year major bank senior bond spreads were at 0.71% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate. As a result of the influences that you just cited and the arrival of the RBA's $200 billion term funding facility, which has obviated the need for most banks to issue senior bonds, these spreads have contracted to just 0.31%. This is well inside the post-GSC tights of around 0.6%. 
We don't see much upside left in senior bank paper and as a result have taken profits on about $2.25 billion of holdings that we added to materially during the March shock when five-year major bank senior spreads blew as wide as 1.71%. In 2020, five-year major bank tier two bond spreads declined modestly from 1.75% to 1.57% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate on a point-to-point basis punctuated by a record blowout in T2 spreads to around 4% in March. The post-GFC tights are around 1.35% and subject to the prevailing supply side technicals, we think that major bank paper could test this level before too long. In the pre-GFC period, major bank T2 traded at circa 0.35% and it could continue to compress significantly yet. Here we note the differences in the contractual terms of T2 today compared with T2 in 2007, juxtaposed against a very large deleveraging of major bank balance sheets. In combination with the emergence of explicit government guarantees of both banks and their liquidity for the first time, this directly reduces default risks, which is credit positive for these securities. Yeah, Ying is perhaps the best value in the bank's capital structure right now is in the 81 hybrid space where five-year major bank spreads remain wide of where they were at the start of 2020. In January, five-year major bank hybrid spreads were sitting at 2.81% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate. Today, they are at about 2.98%, so a little higher. Of course, they blew out to around 8.4% in March when we picked up over $300 million of hybrids in that month alone. And yet the post-GFC tights are much, much lower at around 2.35%, with pre-GFC levels sitting tighter again at 1.25%. Now, of course, the same comments you made regarding the pre- and post-GFC contractual differences in Tier 2 apply to 81 hybrids, and that has to be balanced against the much lower bank leverage, the advent of explicit government guarantees, uh, express liquidity support for banks, and generally a much greater regulatory and managerial risk aversion, which is all credit positive. Another way to think about T2 and 81 hybrid valuations is through the multiple of their spreads over equivalent tenor senior paper that sits higher up the capital stack, which is a heuristic commonly employed by institutional investors. Since the application of the Basel III banking rules in January 2013, five-year major bank T2 bonds have typically traded on a credit spread that is 2.15 times larger than the spread on five-year major bank senior paper. Yet today, that T2 to senior bond spread multiple has expanded to an unprecedented 5.04 times, according to our proprietary internal systems. Similarly, five-year major bank 81 hybrid credit spreads have historically traded about four times the spreads on five-year major bank senior bonds. That multiple has likewise jumped to a never-before-seen 9.56 times. Chris, another tailwind for the hybrid sector is APRA's proposal to adjust the way banks calculate and report their first loss common equity tier ones, or CET1, capital ratios. This will result in the big banks' capital ratios rising by about one to one and a half percentage points. Whereas CBA currently reports an 11.8% CET1 ratio, this could be expected to increase to 12.8% to 13.3%. Aussie Bank hybrids contain a clause that stipulates they must automatically convert into bank equity if the CET1 ratio declines to 5.125%. 
the current distance to default in the case of CBA would require its 11.8% CET1 ratio to shrink by 56.6% for its hybrids to be converted into equity. Under APRA's proposal, CBA would have to suffer greater losses that reduce its new 128 to 13.3% CET1 ratio by about 60% to get down to the conversion trigger. If you go to Livewire and click on Chris's author page, you can read our analysis of APRA's aggressive stress tests of the Aussie banking system, which showed that they were able to comfortably withstand two recessions over 2020 and 2021, encompassing a 30% drop in house prices, a 40% decline in commercial property values, and an increase in the jobless rate to 14% that resulted in cumulative credit losses of $163 billion. Ying, as a final point of interest in respect of the local hybrid market is that NAB has recently obtained shareholder approval to be able to call or repay its long-neglected $2 billion NAB HA security. Uh, and this is a trade we've had on recently and we definitely like. First available opportunity is likely to be in February, perhaps around the 11th of February, uh, which is CCI's central case. This would put $2 billion into the hands of NAB HA holders who will have to search for income elsewhere. The supply outlook for bank hybrids otherwise appears pretty benign in the first half of 2020, with only a handful of new deals expected, which could provide for a positive bid side technical. Obviously, we have a Macquarie, I think a $550 million maturity in March. Um, Westpac has already refinanced its, I think it's a $1.34 billion maturity in March. So there'll be a bunch of cash from that Westpac deal coming back into the system combined with the $2 billion from NABHA, we might see a major bank issue in Q1, but otherwise I think we only have uh, an ANZ maturity in the first half from the majors. Chris, I want to now move on to give our listeners some more granularity on recent housing market innovations. According to CoreLogic's market-leading hedonic index suite, Australian house prices continued their gradual rebound from the COVID-19-induced correction in December, with dwelling values across both capital cities and regional markets appreciating by a strong 1% over the month. The outperformance of non-metro regional markets remained robust with a 1.6% capital gain in December, compared to a still very healthy 0.9% price rise for dwellings located in the eight capital cities. Over the 12 months of 2020, Australian dwelling values officially increased by about 3%. This concealed divergent performance across regional and metro markets, whereas homes in the eight capital cities could only grind out a soft 2% capital gain. Regional dwellings increased in value by a solid 6.9%. The price rises in December were remarkably consistent across the capital cities at around 1% for the month which is impressive considering that this tends to be a seasonally weak month wherein activity dramatically decelerates. Over 2020, the top performing housing market was Darwin, which increased by 9%, followed by Canberra, plus 7.5%, Hobart, plus 6.1%, Adelaide, plus 5.9%, Brisbane, plus 3.6%, and Sydney, plus 2.7%. Yes, Ying Yan Cheng, notwithstanding all the forecasters who predicted massive 10, 15, 20, 30% house price falls in Australia because of COVID-19, only one capital suffered house price depreciation in 2020. That was, of course, Melbourne. And even their prices only fell by a very modest 1.3%. The truly abysmal forecasting performance 
of both analysts and fund managers in respect of the $7.3 trillion Aussie housing market in 2020 was arguably one of the biggest misses of the year, which sadly extends a long-running trend of private and public sector economists getting the nation's largest asset class wildly wrong, especially around key turning points. And here I'm talking about 2008, 2009, 2012 to 2013, 2017, 2019, and 2020, to name all of the big inflections, which I would venture pretty much everyone missed. I know that many clients remember that CCI had an extremely contrarian position in March 2020, which frankly was uh, fairly awkward and uncomfortable to hold, projecting, as you mentioned at the start of the uh, podcast, Ying is uh, only a modest 0 to 5% decline in national home values, which we argued would be superseded by capital gains of at least 10 to 20% commencing in or around September 2020. Across Australia, the peak to trough loss in 2020 was just 2.1%, according to the latest CoreLogic Hedonic Index data. Within the eight capital cities, dwelling values fell by a slightly larger 2.8%, with the correction officially coming to an end in September 2020, as we expected. Now, CCI is forecasting house price growth of 10 to 15% in 2021, a view that um, I think notably many other analysts, economists, and fund managers have belatedly come to embrace. And without rehashing history, if we go back a bit in time, we projected very strong growth between 2012 and 2017. Uh, we were the only analysts in the market to call the 10% drop, which was a record in national house prices between 2017 and 2019, before it happened in early 17. We were the only analysts to call in April 19 a 10% increase in house prices as a result of RBA rate cuts, which is exactly what we got between uh, June 19 and April 2020. And of course, I think we were the only mainstream participants to get 2020 right. What is not widely understood is just how little net aggregate house price growth there has been since 2017. Home values in Sydney and Melbourne are actually 3.88% and 1.76% lower today than they were three years ago. This is also generally true across the eight capital cities, which are 1.87% lower than they were in mid-2017, with the biggest laggard being Perth property, which is 10.2% lower. The flip side of that coin is property in Adelaide and Brisbane, which have net increased in value over this period by 7.79% and 4.91%. Yeah, Yingers, it's also interesting to consider the changes in home values since the peak in the market in April 2020. Dwelling prices across the eight capital cities are still 1.03% below their high watermark last year. This is being driven by Melbourne and Sydney, where prices are 3.8% and 1.6% below their April 2020 peaks. And so they therefore have reasonable ground to recover to get parity back with their pre-COVID marks. Coolabar believes the next phase of the current housing cycle will likely see the return of investors seeking to capitalise on the unprecedented emergence of quote-unquote positive gearing, whereby gross rental yields on apartments, particularly in many capital cities, are way above the cost of servicing residential mortgage debt. Yeah, so Ying, as I know that you're an apartment owner in Fairlight, and if we look at the latest gross rental yields, according to CoreLogic, in Canberra, they're 5.6%, Darwin, 
Darwin, they're 7%. Perth, 5.3%. Adelaide, 5.2%. Brisbane, 5.1%. Sydney, 3.3%. And Melbourne, 3.7%. These are for apartments. Now, listen, understanding the housing market and accurately predicting its future trajectory is hugely important if one wants to have any hope of divining wider economic and hence financial market outcomes. Beyond being the single most valuable household asset, housing is also the banking system's largest exposure. My experience has been that those who get the housing market wrong tend to also misfire when it comes to hitting other macro targets and ultimately portfolio construction. You know, Yingers, I remember all the mega housing bears in Australia during the GFC in 2008, the Steve Keens, the Jeremy Granthams, the Martin Norths. Uh, In 2008, again, we had a highly heterodox position. We said that house prices would only fall modestly. They did. I think they fell by about 8% and that they'd rebound quickly. And we got very strong house price growth in Australia over 2009 and the first half of 2010. Chris, let's switch to talking about what we actually learned from 2020. Well, Ying is, I think for those in the prediction business, there were several really important lessons. The first is actually sheer creativity. We can always do a better job of harnessing our imagination to contemplate the unthinkable. Uh, As you noted earlier, nobody anticipated a global pathogenic contagion in December 2019. And yet that's exactly what we've had to grapple with. In this vein, I think our central tower risk offering for 2021 and the period ahead is the possibility of a bona fide military conflict between the US and, I won't name her, but our irritable trading partner up north. That probability has leapt from circa 10% a decade ago when we were interviewing the likes of Professor Hugh White at ANU and the former head of the CIA and NSA, General Michael Hayden and General Keith Alexander to as high as a 50% probability today, according to both our internal estimates and those of our most accurate geopolitical advisors. And I will say here that I think that we've been more hawkish on these conflict probabilities than even our most hawkish advisors. We have six different geopolitical advisors on the payroll, including, I think, two former advisors to Australian prime ministers, uh, a former head of an Australian peak intelligence agency, Uh, a current advisor to the White House and so on. Yes, Chris. The trigger could be a miscalculation in the South China Sea or the decision by the one-person political state to take Taiwan whilst it still can. Here the fear is that there may be some disruptive US military technology looming that will close the window on the ability of the Middle Kingdom to conquer Taiwan and defend that territory. Unification with Taiwan is one of the people's leaders' defining aspirations for his termless tenure. And if there is one thing that the world has learned about the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao, it is said that he should never be underestimated and constantly surprises with his preference for economic and information warfare and coercion more generally over diplomacy. So that disconcerting thought could make 2020 look relatively benign. On the lessons from 2020, Yingers, I think a second one has been the immense importance of divining what we call the second order policy reaction function or the so-called endogeneity in the economic system. And what I mean by this is the process whereby governments continuously adjust their policy settings in response to shocks, which then crucially reflexively alters the ramifications of those shocks. 
Put more simply, shocks tend not to be as bad as initially feared, precisely because public and private sector agents actively mitigate them. Extrapolating in a straight line from the shock to consequences and overlooking the profound influence of policy decisions can be disastrous. And we saw this in a very sobering fashion in March 2020. The bears who felt that they were vindicated in March, who did well in March, particularly folks who were short in March and posted strong returns in March, I would say 90% of them had abysmal performance and gave back all of that upside over the next six months. So they failed to see the second order policy reaction function. They failed to anticipate the frankly unsurprising massive speculative financial melt up that was for us the inevitable consequence of the uh, necessary intervention by central banks and treasuries to implement unprecedented QE and unprecedented fiscal stimulus in response to this one in 100 year shock. And I'm sure some listeners will remember that in late February, we were writing publicly in the Financial Review that we thought financial markets would not be able to price global pandemic risks and that this would propagate outright market failures and extreme illiquidity. In late February, we were arguing that the central banks would have no choice but to introduce extreme QE and extreme liquidity support. And that's what really... I think fortified that circa billion dollars worth of buying that we did in March 2020. We we're absolutely convinced that these record dislocations that were wrought by COVID-19 in March 2020 would very aggressively normalize and mean revert as a result of the policy interventions. And I think that's what's really served as the foundation for the alpha that we generated in 2020. A final lesson has been the propensity to underestimate, I think, the power of human ingenuity and adaptability. And the best case study last year was, of course, the advent of effective COVID-19 vaccines being developed, approved and deployed in 2020, which took almost all experts, including even the leading US immunologist, Dr. Anthony Fauci, by surprise, at least judging by their March and April predictions. And I'm sure all the listeners remember every man and their dog was arguing over March, April, May, June that we wouldn't get vaccines this year. Vaccines might never arrive. A coronavirus vaccine had never been developed before. We'd never even managed to manufacture an AIDS vaccine uh, and that this was not going to become a panacea for the problem. Well, I've touched on all of these lessons before. I think these lessons afford valuable context as we cast our minds forward to imagine the contours of 2021 and the years thereafter. In respect of our first offering, the risk of major power conflict, a key question remains whether the ascendant superpower up north will error correct in the way a Western liberal democratic lens might expect. What do you reckon, Ines? Yes, Chris, there are two obstructions here. The first is that autocracies tend not to have efficient informational feedback loops. Evidence and or perspectives that conflict with the position of the central authority are instinctively suppressed. A second obstacle to peace is that conflict and struggle with capitalism are core imperatives of the Marxist-Leninist model. Western capitalists is useless, indeed an intellectual handicap, when trying to predict socialist behaviours. One is left to conclude that while internal error correction expressly against the authority or voluntary adjustment by the authority itself are possible, they remain lower probability, which is a depressing prospect. Yeah, Ying, as questions also linger about the tractability of vaccines, 
whilst we've been super positive on vaccines being approved and distributed this year, there are lurking left tail contingencies. The most obvious is that there are hidden systematic side effects that render the most promising messenger RNA solutions from Moderna and Pfizer redundant. If such vulnerabilities were to emerge, that could be cataclysmic for markets. Now, although this is not our central case, it is worthwhile bearing in mind. It's certainly kind of one of my uh, sleeping fears. It's also not clear that even 95% effective vaccines will present a solution for opening borders as is widely assumed, especially in zero tolerance countries like Australia. If the premiers are prepared to lock down entire states on the basis of a handful of infections, it's hard to see them allowing foreigners to come here or Australians to return without 14-day quarantines if there is a 5 to 6% chance the vaccine doesn't work. Now, this implies that borders will not be open to other countries until those nations eliminate the virus. Eradication, not mitigation, has become the Antipodean priority. Chris, turning back to property and looking ahead to this year and the next, we believe that the probability distribution for Aussie housing is firmly skewed to right-tail outcomes. While the RBA clings to the view that property price inflation will be modest because of weak population growth, the practical reality will be different. But this should not be a cause for concern. We've repeatedly stressed that prices today are only normalising back to their 2017 levels after the largest correction on record, exceeding 10% between 2017 and 2019. Across bank balance sheets, housing credit growth is well below historical averages. And the RBA knows that if they do develop some financial stability anxieties, they can actively call any ebullience through the application of constraints on lending via so-called macroprudential tools. Yes, comrade, our core view is that in 2021, the Australian economy performs materially better than economists and the RBA project with unprecedented public spending, a rebounding consumption, the recovery in housing and the booming resources industry key drivers. This will also be welcome news for the federal and state budgets, which will not be nearly as bad as the treasurers are currently projecting. Since March, we've asserted that the jobless rate would stabilise between 6 and 7%. Uh, as you noted earlier, Ying is well below consensus forecasts of uh, 10 to 12% outcome. And in 2021, we think employment growth will positively surprise again. It will not, however, be enough to generate the 4% wages growth the RBA wants to get inflation back into its target band. To do that, they need to crush the jobless rate back into the crucial 4-point-something, quote-unquote, percent zone that Phil Lowe, the governor of the RBA, has repeatedly cited. And this is going to take years and much more additional stimulus. Yes, Chris. And coupled with the fact that Australia's AAA and AA rated government bond yields are the highest in the world and still very attractive hedged into yen, euros or US dollars, this should motivate the RBA to extend its efforts to combat the increase in long-term interest rates and the Aussie dollar without sparking a housing bubble by applying downward pressure on five to 10 year government bond yields through further quantitative easing. It is currently the safest policy option available to the central bank. And as we've noted, near 0% global cash rate should make the search for yield one of the dominant narratives of 2021. Yet investors need not chase risk to get superior returns. Sure, if you only want more yield, you must take more risk. 
But if you are searching for better returns, a safer option is capturing capital gains on more liquid and lower risk assets that are rendered when you exploit asset mispricings using intellectual edge. Somewhat paradoxically, Yingers, and perhaps optimistically, one winner from 2020 could be democracy and the open, transparent and market-orientated business model it espouses to maximise prosperity and safeguard liberty. Highly motivated private companies like Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca, working with researchers around the world, have delivered us three effective and safe vaccines in absolute record time. There has never been a more galvanizing event that has brought more people together through the power of instant digital communications to cooperate without fetters, to better understand, and to seek to defeat what has been, I reckon, incorrectly perceived as an existential threat to our species. In this context, the greatest legacy of COVID-19 may be an unexpected one. It has united a once conflicted and dispersed liberal democratic order in recognition that there is, in fact, a potential existential threat. It's not COVID-19, but it could be the underappreciated ascension of an autocratic superpower that appears to want to bend capitalism to its will through any means necessary, kinetic or otherwise. This superpower is committed to doing so with an ideological fervour because it regards democracy and its companion capitalism as threats to its own longevity. To this lens, all adversaries must be eliminated or subordinated if the autocracy is to survive. And we've certainly experienced this firsthand here in Australia with the imposition of unprecedented tariffs and economic coercion on our key uh, exports to this particular counterparty. After free riding on an unwitting liberal democratic world for decades, powering its own prosperity by the very vehicle it strives to overwhelm, COVID-19 has inadvertently revealed the autocracy for what it actually is. Profoundly, countermeasures by democratic actors are now forcing it down the road of autarky, which will seal its demise unless it error corrects into something resembling the Singaporean model. And by autarky, of course, we mean isolation. Yet error correction is something autocracies find difficult, Chris, because debate, dissent and the ensuing self-learning are not tolerated. This is why they make ostensibly simple mistakes over and over again. And it is why they are doomed to fail or suffer irreversible decline. Conversely, elastic error correction is arguably capitalism's greatest attribute. Trump was an example of this creative destruction in action. On the one hand, Trump was the disruptive shock Western foreign policy desperately needed to refocus its priorities. On the other, Trump's unprofessional governance approach, incapable of managing the COVID-19 crisis, has been roundly rejected by the electoral system. In a Darwinian fashion, that system should embrace the foreign policy positives while avoiding a repeat of the organisational negatives. Unfortunately, this brings us to a final legacy, a huge increase in uncertainty as a result of the fracturing of the geopolity into the competing Western and Sino-led franchises. The risk of major power conflict has not been more elevated since the Cold War. As the RBA is wont to advise, the road ahead is likely to be a bumpy one. There are doubtless unusually fat tails on both the left and right-hand sides of the distribution of possible futures. And, well, that's it, folks. If you want to read some of our latest research papers, please go to our website, www.coolabarcapital.com. 
If you want to learn more about our products, please email info at coolabarcapital.com. And don't forget to keep an eye on Chris's Livewire page and AFR columns for our latest weekly insights. Finally, thank you for your time today and please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.